Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and we have big news uh, happening uh, t- that our panel will weigh in on uh, today. So I want to get right to them and start our conversation. Uh, it's Thursday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss of the AJC, editor Kevin Riley. Hey, and Kevin, we should tell people you're out in Athens where you're doing the show from today because you're going to be speaking to our panelist and friend Audrey Haynes' applied politics class later this morning. Yeah, that's right, Phil. I'm uh, really looking forward to that. And uh, as always, um, I enjoy a chance to talk to students, all of whom these days seem much more committed and smarter than I was at that age. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I certainly uh, go one step further. I, I've said on this show many times, I'm a college dropout. I never understood college. It just didn't work for me at all. So those students are way ahead of me. Uh, we're also joined today by Professor Amy Steigerwald, Professor of Political Science at Georgia State University. And although we don't mention this every time you're on, Amy, it's to, for today's conversation, it's particularly important. A great deal of your research has been on the federal judiciary, various aspects of how the federal judiciary operates from the selection process to the institutions and how they uh, uh, impact uh, uh, life in, in, as we know it in America. And so uh, we're really glad you could be here today when we get to the Mississippi case a little later in the show. Amy? Thanks very much for having me. Um, you're, uh, you're, our colleague, uh, Fred Smith, is here as well. He's a professor of constitutional law, as I think you all know, at Emory University. And uh, Fred, thank you for being here. I'm looking forward to hearing your observations about what happened in the Supreme Court yesterday. I think you're uh, muted, Fred. Uh, I shouldn't be. Now we hear you. Okay. We it's hear a pleasure you. to be here. Okay. Okay, thanks. And Tammy Greer is with us as well. She's a professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University and has particular interest in the subject of uh, voting and uh, turning turnout how to energize uh, various voter groups to come to the polls. Hi, Tammy. Hi, good morning, everyone. And um, this is a great subject. All of the subjects today are great to talk about the intersection of voting and outcomes. Yeah, so let's get right to it. Um, We are going to talk in just a little while about what happened yesterday when the Supreme Court of the United States heard the Mississippi abortion case. Um, But before we get to that, Kevin, we have bigger news for Georgians, I think, and that's that after weeks and weeks of people wondering what was happening especially Democrats, with Stacey Abrams. She's finally said, yes, I'm in the race. She released a video announcing her candidacy. So she is running for governor uh, next year. And um, I, I think it's interesting that even as she announced and Democrats got excited about that announcement, uh, there were some Republicans who were cheering about it too because they think she'll energize their voters against her. Kevin? Kevin? 
Well, yeah, now uh, they can actually, uh, I think Republicans actually can actually start uh, doing things and planning uh, instead of just talking and hoping that Stacey Abrams will run. For some reason, uh, there's just something about Stacey Abrams that uh, I think we quoted someone as saying, don't underestimate her ability to unify Republicans, which is sort of an odd way to look at the race. Of course, this raises other questions, including what's David Perdue going to actually do now? What is Brett, the former President Trump going to do? Who will he support? And uh, that'll be interesting to see because the, the, despite the fact Republicans are, Republicans are excited to run against Stacey Abrams, they've got their own set of issues to deal with. Tammy, um, uh, in, in the video that Abrams released, she said, among other things, this. My job has been to put my head down and keep working toward one Georgia for that farmer in Peach County, a teacher in Spartanburg, a mechanic in College Park, for our next generation. And she went on with, with that theme to talk about Georgians across the state various uh, in various occupations, uh, whether they're in rural or urban Georgia. But here's why I think it's interesting. One of the phrases that was repeated over and over in her announcement is, one Georgia. She ends her video by saying, we are one Georgia. And it's pretty clear that that's likely to be the tagline and the theme of her campaign, I think, Tammy. And it should be. Um, so we talked previously about um, some politicians um, intentionally separating us as, 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 um, as constituents. Um, and having this message and continuing with the message of one Georgia, one Georgia, one Georgia, allows for us to think of us as neighbors and as, as a collective. And if we can continue to have that type of thought, then we can work toward policies um, for that, that are best for everyone and not just half or partial of the population. Amy? Um, it's an interesting thing. A lot of people start with attack ads, right? That's sort of what we saw coming from the governor, the you know, Governor Kemp. Um, but studies actually really show in political science that people respond much more to positive campaign ads and to uh, positive things there. And so I, I'm sort of struck by that she doesn't start out by saying, here's the issues with the other side here, right, sort of trying to demonize them. And so it's very much a focus on here's the positive things that I can do and can contribute. And it struck me as sort of very similar to also what we saw with uh, Senator Warnock in the campaign that he ran um, and sort of focusing on the positive, um, of course, the sort of iconic campaign ad that he released where he was walking his dog through the street and saying, you know, I'm not scary and I cut my pizza with a knife and a fork. And it's sort of a similar thing of by focusing on that, because, again, studies actually show that voters respond much. They, they're much more likely to remember those ads and they actually respond much more positively and they help with uh, turnout and things like that much more so than sort of traditional attack ads do. Um, so, uh, uh, Kevin, why don't you jump back in? I mean, you make an interesting point. So let me let me follow up on that, uh, and then I think Tammy uh, can weigh in here too as well. Um, these this is a rematch, right? I mean, that's what it looks like. So how will the messages and ads be the same or different? Because last time I felt like both candidates sought to define the other, which is really where negative ads come from. But but since it's like everybody knows these two. So where do they go with their message? 
Fred? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, assuming that it is a rematch, right? We don't. She doesn't actually 100% know who her opponent uh, is going to be, and so it's it's kind of hard to go uh, on the attack right now, even if uh, if she wanted to. Um, but I do think that um, that this message of one Georgia is resonant with what her reputation was when she was a legislator. Um, so when she was a legislator, she was known to um, reach across the aisle. It was known that uh, even if she disagreed with a bill, she was a person who you could go to um, and she would uh, she would share her policy expertise to make a bill better, even if she didn't agree with it. And I think that four years ago, somewhere along the line, <laughs> uh, that image of Stacey Abrams I got transported into something a lot more polarizing. And in some respects, it seems like with this opening campaign ads, uh, she's going back to her roots. And and I think, Tammy, this notion of we are one Georgia, um, it's not going to appeal to the Republican base, clearly. I mean, they are are entrenched in their uh, support for uh, conservative Trump-style politics. Um, But but the, the, the voters that are persuadable, suburban, women particularly, might be really attracted to this notion that, um, oh my gosh, we're so tired of the anger, the feuding, the the nasty rhetoric, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show today. This may feel like uh, something of a breath of fresh air to them. We'll see. It does. And I hope it, um, as we move forward, we think about it not only from a state level, we look at it from a federal level as well, um, because the separation um, of or attempt to separate us as people really does not move the needle forward when it comes to policies. We really are not addressing um, policy gaps or inequities by the continuation of, of separating and being negative about others who, who are different from us. So if we can look at the complexity of policy of the items that are affecting the same rural voter that is impacting that um, a different urban voter, um, if we could look at us as a collective, then we can really move the needle. So I'm really hoping that, um, that the message of oneness can continue on so that we can move forward with policy. Well, let's be be sure we point out Republicans have a very different view of this, Amy. Um, Brian Kemp, uh, for instance, the statement he uh, put out after the announcement by Abrams was, quote, next November's election for governor is a battle for the soul of our state. I'm in the fight against Stacey Abrams, the failed Biden agenda, and their woke allies to keep Georgia the best place to live, work, and raise a family. So, you know, there is the words woke. Um, he's also, there Republicans are referring, you know, to the far left agenda. And clearly there are people who are going to say, um, contrary to what Abrams and her folks say, that that Brian Kemp's handling the pandemic um, kept the state moving forward economically, uh, even though he was criticized heavily for not closing things down more, not ordering mask mandates, vaccine mandates, but he's going to make the case that his approach worked and uh, and kept Georgia moving forward. And that's why he'll say Georgia is the best place to live, work and raise a family. Certainly. I mean, those are definitely, I think, the way that he's going to argue it. I think more to sort of bring piggybacking on, on Tammy's point, what will be interesting is to see how much 
um, particularly given the initial response that Governor Kemp had, that he focuses on his policies and what it is that he wants to do and present, as opposed to simply um, sort of attacking Stacey Abrams and suggesting this kind of otherness. Because I think one of the things that is notable about Abrams' launch was that focus on I'm not even really going to sort of talk about kind of the other side. Instead, I'm going to tell you, here are my policies, right? Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my vision for what it's going to look like. Um, And again, what is interesting is even though we see so many campaign ads that are these negative attacks, et cetera, again, studies routinely show that people respond much more positively to policy-centric ads as well as positive ads. Um, And so and that when it comes to increasing turnout, um, increasing candidate evaluations and likability, that's actually what voters respond to much more, even though that's not generally what we see in the ads in reality. Right there, there's kind of this disconnect between what campaigns do and what the studies show us voters actually respond positively and negatively to. So uh, Fred has already uh, uh, made an important point here, assuming he said Brian Kemp is her opponent. And we really, really don't know at this point what what is going to happen there. For example, here's Donald Trump's statement about Stacey Abrams' decision to enter the race. Quote, Stacey the hoax Abrams has just announced she's running for governor of Georgia. I beat her single-handedly without much of a candidate in 2018, talking about his support back then for Brian Kemp. I'll beat her again, but it will be hard to do with Brian Kemp because the MAGA base will just not vote for him after what he did with respect to election integrity and two horribly run elections for president and then two Senate seats. But some good Republican will run and some good Republican will get my endorsement and some good Republican will win. Uh, Kevin, uh, you know, Trump keeps pounding away and encouraging his base to uh, uh, not support Brian Kemp. And there's still David Perdue lurking in the uh, shadows. Yeah, and, and Perdue, I think, is, you know, we've reported that he's been telling people that he's afraid that Kemp just can't beat Abrams, and, and that's why he would run. You know, one other thing that uh, Greg Bluestein reported this morning last night, Sean Hannity um, called for mm-hmm. Kemp to bow out of the race and, and make way for yep. Perdue. So, uh, Governor Kemp is just going to have those headwinds in a way. That's, you know, very unusual, obviously, for an incumbent and uh, extremely unusual for a Republican incumbent in Georgia to uh, face those kind of challenges. Um, so, I, you know, I, it's hard to say. And he's been working away at, at solidifying his support. Um, but it's uh, it's not a simple race. And uh, I don't think former President Trump will work to simplify it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Tammy. I agree. I, um, it, it's very interesting to see Republicans splintering off, particularly in in Georgia, with the significance of the profile of Georgia politics becoming more competitive. Um, so it's very interesting to see what is um, the motive and the, the the end game when it comes to the splintering of the Republican Party 
And and uh, if both sides of the Republicans have a understanding or view that Stacey Abrams or the Democratic Party um, is a growing political threat in Georgia, then why would you separate? Why not come together? So I'm very curious as to, you know, what is the end result? What are they looking to get out of um, this splintering um, and this public infighting um, that could turn into one of those candidates becoming a third-party candidate um, just to, to be on the ballot? So, um, Amy, a couple questions uh, for you. Um, number one, uh, Abrams is going to have to run behind whatever the Biden agenda is viewed as in, as 2022 moves forward. Clearly, President Biden having troubles with his approval rating, um, and we don't know where that's headed. Um, she's going to have to deal with the fact that in off-year elections, uh, it's the party out of power that often wins. Um, so it isn't as if this is going to be certainly not an easy race. Georgia's a purple state as it is. It can swing either way. But there are these additional factors that Democrats are going to have to overcome in the governor's race and other races on the ballot. No, I think that that is all completely true. So we've got on the one side that Georgia is very much so going to be a nationalized race because not only do we have the gubernatorial election, but we also have Senator Warnock running for a full term. Remember that he was just running originally uh, to finish out uh, the term. And so now it's to actually run for a full term. So both those races are going to be on there and definitely control of the Senate as well as control of the House in Congress are going to both be up. So that's going to very much nationalize that race. And so I think we are going to see sort of those coattails and those issues. Um, On the other side, though, we have, which is a terribly important point, what Tammy was talking about is this question of what is the national response from Republicans about how best to respond to some of these pressures, including is the correct answer to oddly tell their voters to stay home? Um, and to not turn out because they don't like a particular candidate or they don't like where that's going. Um, you know, it, it's on the one hand, while I, I, as Kevin said, Republicans may be excited that Stacey Abrams is running, um, the best thing that could happen for Democrats in Georgia is that David Perdue decides to challenge Governor Kemp and they have a terribly bloody primary and the uh, Democrats just get to kind of wait and let them hash it all out and, you know, save their resources and things like that. So I think that's going to be an interesting part to really watch and and how they're responding on that turnout of are they encouraging people to vote or are they instead separating themselves not only from Democrats, but also internally in ways that are really harmful. So um, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about this race in the weeks and months ahead. But before we close the topic today completely, Fred, um, we know that Stacey Abrams can raise untold amounts of money from people across the country. She's shown that prolific fundraising skill because she is a major national figure. Um, Brian Kemp has already built up a pretty big war chest himself. But here's a question I wonder about. If Trump uh, continues to attack uh, Kemp, A story that we didn't get to on this show from a couple weeks back was the Republican Governors Association had their big annual meeting. And uh, the reporting on that pointed out that the only governor, only one governor at that meeting 
was uh, willing to publicly and unequivocally say, yeah, we want Brian Kemp uh, to make, we want to make sure we support Brian Kemp for governor. And I can't help but wonder if there's that feeling outside of Georgia that Kemp is weakened by Trump, whether his fundraising in the long run might be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've seen nasty uh, primaries in Georgia before um, in the Democratic, on the Democratic side and the Republican side. We've seen moments where on the Democratic side it did significantly weaken candidates going back to Kathy Cox and, uh, and Mark Taylor many years ago. Um, but generally, the Republicans have been able to come together after tough races. I think what makes this difficult is kind of going ahead. What does bringing people together look like? And I think they see that path as easier for Purdue than for Kemp. So for Kemp, he either has to really deeply cozy up to Trump and have Trump come into the state and 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 uh, and, and or or give the impression um, that he is strongly pro MAGA in ways that might turn off uh, some suburban voters, or um, he can kind of stay at arm's length but not be able to excite um, excite his base. Um, now, all of that said, because there is a Senate election too. <laughs> Um, yeah. That benefits uh, that, that that potentially benefits Kemp because people may come out um, for that race and and hold their noses and vote for him too. Yeah, you know, I I, I mean, as I watch way, the way Kemp has navigated the Trump uh, animosity, uh, it strikes me he's. Uh, He's taken the only course he can, which is to continue to say kind things about the, the former president, uh, to not push back when the when the when Trump's people uh, uh, criticize him. Yeah, so you know, I think he's finding his way, but it's going to be it's going to be quite an issue for him to work out. All right, why don't we get to the first break of the show? Because I really am looking forward to coming back and being able to talk with you all about what you heard yesterday in the Supreme Court's uh, uh, arguments about the Mississippi abortion law. We'll do that after these messages. Welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. We're here today with Kevin Riley, with Fred Smith of Emory University, Amy Steigerwald at Georgia State, and Tammy Greer at Clark Atlanta University. Uh, Kevin, just before we move on to the court, um, our friend Karen Owen, uh, who was on the show yesterday, uh, sent a, a, a text to me saying, listening to the show right now, you should note that Sonny Perdue went on record at a rally in middle Georgia telling the GOP to respect Kemp and what he has done. The question uh, she would raise is that, is, is this mean... Uh, uh, Purdue is not going to jump into the race. But I, I'm not sure what to make of a statement like that, Kevin. I think we're just going to have to wait and see how it plays out, right? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, Fred mentioned the significance of the Senate race. So there's no way Trump's not going to be around or in the middle of this thing because he has such an interest in what's going on in the Senate race. So uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. But at least it won't be boring, Bill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, let's talk about the Supreme Court. And what I'd really like to do with our two court, our, our, our court watchers first uh, is to ask each of you um, to just give me and, and the audience, our listeners, your general impression of what you heard yesterday and what you think the justices may be heading to do based on their observations. Fred, why don't you start as the constitutional law professor on the show? 
Yeah, I mean, so I, I agree with most of the analysis that I've seen publicly, um, which is that they seem very poised to uphold this particular um, Mississippi law, um, which bans abortions at the 15-week uh, mark and doesn't have any um, exceptions for rape. Um, and they, uh, there's some group of justices who seem very willing to overturn Roe versus Wade, um, and we're kind of asking questions um, about you know, perhaps why there aren't really strong um, reasons to defer to prior courts um, when it comes to this particular issue and why it perhaps makes more sense to defer to politically accountable branches like legislatures. Um, so uh, the Chief Justice in, in particular seemed interested in, um, in, in an opinion that didn't uh, categorically overturn um, the, the, the core elements of Roe versus Wade. Um, but there are other justices who seem much more interested in doing that. And so I think the question in some ways is, will the chief uh, be able to um, to encourage or persuade some of his colleagues? I mean, he, the, the reality is, right, they have six votes total on the, on the conservative side of things, right? So um, they don't much necessarily need him. Um, but the, still the question, I think, is whether he'll be able to persuade them um, to write an opinion that somehow upholds this Mississippi law um, but would not necessarily inevitably mean that a law like the much more restrictive Georgia law, for example, um, uh, could be uh, upheld. Amy? I totally agree with Fred's analysis. Um, I think the two things that the court is really going that I saw them working through yesterday and they're not really being a clear answer to were number one, if viability is not the line anymore, what instead is the alternative, right? There was a lot of discussion about sort of what is workable, what's not, and sort of uh, an idea that there needed to be kind of a clear bright rule. And so the question is, what is that? Because viability is a pretty clear bright line rule. And so what is the alternative instead, right? Where would that number be? How do we understand why 15 is okay, but not 14 or 12 or nine? I think the second part of it, which goes really to this question of whether or not Roe and Casey themselves are overturned, is what are the implications for other rules? Like, what would be the reason why they're overturning Roe and Casey? And then what are the implications for, for example, if they overturn that, the holding in the court in Griswold v. Connecticut, which is the one uh, which extended the right to privacy to talk about sort of intimate relations and meant that we couldn't have laws that outlawed contraception. What about Loving v. Virginia, which established sort of the right to marriage, which again, sort of is a precursor to Griswold. Um, and also is the case that led to Obergefell, which said that we can't have bans against same-sex marriage, right? How do we, if we say that there's not substantive due process in the Constitution or a right to privacy in the Constitution, then what does that mean for all of these other rulings that are predicated on that same argument? And that was one where that was that was a really interesting back and forth that the Mississippi Solicitor General didn't have a great answer to of why, how do we distinguish those and where does that argument come in? Kevin Amy, Riley. As, as an observer of the federal bench, I mean, let me ask you this question. Uh, so we know that um, this this court is the result of a decades-long effort, you know, largely uh, started by Justice Scalia, 
um, and Federalist Society to, to get as many conservatives on the court as possible. Um, isn't this their moment? I mean, I know you're sort of citing complications and the rulings they could make and all that. But to me, I mean, they have been working on this for 40 years. Are they really going to walk past this or are they just going to go ahead and open, you know, these kinds of debates on all the decisions that conservatives have disagreed with for so long? All right. Before, Amy, you answer, let me put this in a little bit of a context and remind people of what what yesterday really was all about. There are two issues basically here. Mississippi did establish the 15-week viability standard, which is contrary to Casey, um, which uh, has a, a longer period in which an abortion is legal in this country. So they had that to deal with. But once, this, once we saw that they, once three conservative justices were added by Donald Trump to the court, they went another, they went even further. They said in their uh, 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 court uh, uh, papers, we don't want to just deal with 15-week viability. We want you to use this case to overturn Roe. And that's one of the questions, Amy and Fred and, and um, Tammy, that we really want to kind of dig down on a little bit today. And for instance, and I'd be interested, Amy, we'll start with you. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh yesterday um, was very sympathetic to an argument made by the Mississippi Solicitor General, Scott Stewart, who, who said, Roe and Casey haunt our country, use those words, poisoned the law, choked off compromise, Abortion is a hard issue, he said, and it isn't a question for the courts. We should remain neutral. And this is how Brett Kavanaugh, let's listen, responded to that. I want to be uh, clear about what you're arguing and not arguing. Um, And to be clear, you're not arguing that the court somehow has the authority to itself uh, prohibit abortion or that this court has the authority to order the states to prohibit abortion, as I understand it, correct? Correct, Your Honor. As I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution is silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve. So, Amy, what Kavanaugh was laying the groundwork for there was to say, since the Constitution he claims is neutral on abortion, that's arguable, obviously, um, then we should get out of this fight altogether. Roe shouldn't be the law of the land, and it should be up to states and legislators to figure out what they want to do. Yes. So it's the pre. what he was arguing was the precursor of a broader argument, which is that admittedly, the right to privacy is what we call an unenumerated right. It is not explicitly laid out in the Constitution, and rather it is um, one that is sort of devolved from other things that are discussed in it and link back to the amendments that exist there. Now, I should note, we have a lot of unenumerated rights. Um, For example, Justice Scalia was a huge proponent of a certain unenumerated right, which was called the right to association. 
right? We also have uh, other unenumerated rights or other things that in their judicial review, as Justice Sotomayor discussed in her back and forth with the solicitor, with the same solicitor general, uh, is also not enumerated in the Constitution. And so a lot of this is predicated on there. But that was a the simplest argument that can be made is that this right to privacy, and especially the right to privacy as it extends to the right to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy, is unenumerated and so therefore should have never been granted by the court in the first place, right? Therefore, it's not actually a right and it can be sent back to the states. The only way, though, to make that argument is to say that it's not a right, right? If it is a right, then by definition, it is not supposed to be sent back to the states. It's not something that is neutral and to be debated on by political whims. The whole idea is that there shouldn't be that as you move from state to state, in some states, your rights are protected, and in other states, your rights are not as protected. And so part of it, what is really fundamentally going on in that colloquy is he was trying to really sort of get to the basis of the argument that this isn't a right at all. And therefore, it really instead is a social policy that can be debated and left to the states. Fred? Yeah, so um, in that particular exchange, uh, definitely highlights how some members of the court are, are potentially interested in um, actually overturning Roe versus Wade and questioning the very premise that there is a right to privacy at all. Um, but, you know, and as Amy notes, right, so, well, first I'll just say, I mean, the Ninth Amendment of the Constitution explicitly says that just because a right isn't enumerated in the Constitution doesn't mean that people don't have it, right? So there's so, um, and, that, and that's done a lot, uh, some of the work in these right to privacy cases. Um, you know, so some of these arguments, when I hear them, I'm like, have you read the Ninth Amendment? <laughs> but, um, but, it, but in any event, um, I mean, I think, though, at some point, the, these justices are going to have to put pen to paper. Um, and... Uh, the very right that says that the government can't force people to give birth is the same right that says that the government can't force someone to have an abortion. It's the same thing, right? It's the right to privacy. It's the right to bodily integrity. It's a right to autonomy. Um, it's the right to be let alone, that there be a, a, a space um, in our lives that the government cannot enter. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I think it's, as they actually have to kind of write this out, um, you know, it may be that, you know, that something short of these more aggressive arguments prevails. Um, it, it, let me bring you and Tammy on another point that was made in the hearing yesterday that I think a lot of people um, were a little bit taken aback by. Uh, Justice Barrett at one point questioned whether we really needed Roe v. Wade because times have changed. Um, women have been able to do a couple, they've been able to balance work and home life more, more uh, positively than in the past. They've been able to have a work life, even if they have babies. She said, and, and more to the point, um, adoption is an, an option, is a very strong option now. And so therefore the question is, why do we even need uh, Roe v. Wade? And, and it, you know, that to me more than anything else, and I may be reading something into it that isn't there, said a lot to me about her Catholic upbringing. It, it says a lot. Um, and um, so let's, let's first look at this work-life balance thing. Um, as a woman of privilege, um, it's very interesting to say that, oh, it's easier now, right? Um, because not so much. Child care is very expensive. 
um, for women to be able to um, to have a full day of work and then to have um, to care for children um, without having assistance of someone who is not a family member. And even if they did, the privilege to which she's able to say that is very illuminating, right? Um, illuminating. When it comes to this notion of um, adoption, let's be clear on states like Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama who have, uh, you know, tens of thousands of children in the foster care system, right, who, who do not have permanent homes. Um, so they are living, you know, um, on government assistance um, because for whatever reason, for whatever reason, um, they are not with their birth families. We have to consider what is the impact on those children who then become adults who are aged out of the system and who may not have the support at the age, the legal age of 18 in order to, to move and thrive. I also think it's interesting for the conservatives on the court to go back to this notion of states' rights, therefore that the Articles of Confederation should supersede the U.S. Constitution, because having states to have a larger impact um, versus it being these United States of America, um, having states to do these items uh, separately and differently can have a long-term impact. Therefore, it appears to me as well as justices such as um, um, Amy Comey Barrett and Justice Thomas, who are individuals who are not considered to be part of the original Constitution now hold on to, you know, that the Constitution is perfect as is, that there are no changes or amendments that need to be done, that it is a stale document. Kevin, before I have to get to a break, we should talk about Sonia Sotomayor. Justice uh, Sotomayor, she really uh, expressed deep, deep feelings uh, and, and anger about what the court was looking at. Uh, let me play just a little bit of what she had to say. <clears throat> Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? Kevin, what Sotomayor was referring to is uh, she said the Senate uh, sponsor of the Mississippi bill said that they were put, putting this forward, especially asking the court to overturn Roe, strictly because they knew there were three new conservative justices on the court. And if the court goes along with that, it will show its political partisanship. And she thinks that will be uh, a devastating for the court. Wall Street Journal, it's worth reading again. Boy, they really went after her in an opinion piece, an editorial this morning for exposing those angry feelings. But I think there's a lot of people who share her concerns. Well, yeah, there's always this debate about is the court too far ahead of our society or too far behind, right? And we know that the majority of Americans have said in polling pretty consistently that they don't want the court to, to overturn Roe v. Wade, the majority of Americans. So I think she was raising that issue of um, we are, you know, the court is now perceived more and more as political and that, in her view and others, you know, many agree that it damages the court to be seen that way. 
All right, I've got to get to our final break. Um, Just one final note on this, of course. We're not going to know how the court will rule until probably uh, late in June. Uh, There's a feeling that this may very well be one of the last decisions the court releases, which would make it late in the month. And however it comes down, it will land smack in the middle of the 2022 election cycle and have a powerful impact there as well. Let's get to our break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Uh, Kevin Riley, Natalie Mendenhall, our new senior producer, sent me a note uh, summarizing some of the results of the Tuesday runoff elections, and they're interesting in many ways. Of course, we now have a a new mayor-elect for the city of Atlanta. But in addition to that, um, the people of Warner Robins elected for the first time, not just a, 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 an African-American, but the first African-American, the first woman to be mayor, LaRonda Patrick. The city council here in Atlanta put five millennials, elect, elected five millennials uh, first uh, there as well. Uh, Democrats turned seven seats in runoff elections around Metro Atlanta. There seemed to be, Kevin, a mood among voters in many cases that it's time to bring some fresh blood into our government. Yeah, you know, there's often this argument that incumbency is an advantage, and certainly there are advantages to incumbency, but I think the more local, the further down ballot a race is, maybe that incumbency uh, means less. And it, it, it is a place where voters feel like they can have the most impact, it w- would be my interpretation. Um, Fred, what do you think about the way the elections turned out? Yeah, so another, I mean, to, uh, to Kevin's point, in our city legislature here in Atlanta, two incumbents uh, did lose uh, their runoffs the other night. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I, there certainly is this, uh, I, you know, I was at, I won't say what uh, party, but I was at one of the parties for one of the city council uh, candidates the other night. And um, and there was this feeling very much um, that this was, that, the, that this is a transformative uh, moment. Um, you know, in the in the previous kind of the general election, um, it, it seemed like it was going to be Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed. Um, and it was going to be very much kind of a referendum on Kasim Reed uh, from a few years ago. Um, and when Kasim Reed didn't make the runoff, voters had an opportunity to look at this with fresh eyes uh, and say, oh, wait, this is about policy. This is about two people and their records. Um, and uh, and kind of and, and they went with someone who, in my view, um, kind of has sort of more of a, um, a record of affirmative uh, accomplishments. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what um, what happens with this uh, this energy and excitement. Tammy, um, what's your take on, on, on the local elections um, and the challenges? So let's talk about Atlanta for a minute. Andre Dickens has his work cut out for him. He's already trying to make inroads in terms of heading off the Buckhead City uh, movement. That's going to be a very difficult challenge. Solving the public uh, safety crisis in Atlanta is an enormous task. Um, it, anybody who won that seat has a lot ahead of them. They do. Um, and number one, speaking of um, one community, right? So talk about one Atlanta. Um, and um, if if Dickens walks into this with the support of city council, right? 
um, such that um, the government inside of the city of Atlanta looks unified, um, then some of these challenges can can be um, you know dealt with as efficiently as possible. Um, at the same time, if um, the city council um, is contentious in any way, um, then there then the challenges will be exacerbated. So I'm really hoping that city council um, and the mayor's office, as well as Fulton County and DeKalb County, um, we all work together um, in order to, to combat some of these, these issues. So it will be very interesting to see um, how, um, how everyone reacts to the situation. Amy, um, one of the interesting uh, notes about the city of Atlanta election is that for the first time since the early 2000s, we're going to have a, an African-American mayor and a white city council president. Last time we saw that was when Kathy Woolard was the president of the city council, when Shirley Franklin was mayor, and now we're going to have Andre Dickens as the mayor and Doug Shipman as a city council uh, president. Just an interesting uh, little note. Also, Amy, uh, Alan Abramowitz sent me a map of, where, of the, how the voting went in the election, and it's astonishing. I mean, the northern parts of Atlanta, up through Brookhaven, Vinings, and maybe down into Midtown, are largely blue, but anything below that is all red. This is a divided city when it came to the uh, election. Yeah, and by, I mean, by so, blue, by the way, I mean I mean uh, uh, voted for uh, blue voters for uh, Moore and, and the red voters for uh, Dickens. Yes, Andre Dickens was most decidedly able to coalesce uh, particularly black and brown support. Um, one of the things that happened that we sort of learned, right? I, many of us thought coming out, right, and it's sort of this is normally what happens, right, is that the person who is sort of leading, right, that it was going to be a little bit easier for Felicia Moore. She only had to get 10 percent more to get right over that. 50% hump. Um, instead, what we learned is that that 40% was really both her floor and her ceiling. Um, she didn't really make a lot of inroads. And instead, Andre Dickens was able to coalesce support of those who had voted also for Kasim Reed um, and really to do the job that needed to be done on turnout. Um, and this was a terribly low turnout race, which is not a surprise. But it meant that it mattered even more who was out there, who was able to get their voters to the polls. Um, I mean, I will admit that I actually saw Andre Dickens walking down the road a couple times. Uh, he was on Ponce. They were out there trying to get people to go to the polls um, and waving the signs and things like that. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with it. There were more people going around door to door and turning out, and that had a lot to do with it and being able to to coalesce that support, and perhaps it was also the the Buckhead question as well. Yeah, Tammy, as, we're running out of time, but as someone who really cares about turning out voters, energizing voters, getting people to take democracy seriously, this this turnout must have been very discouraging to you. I mean, this is a crucial election. I know there are people who are distracted by many, many things in their lives, but voting is about the most fundamental responsibility that we have as citizens. It is. It is the mark of a true and full citizenship. And I just would encourage um, the listeners um, to go out and preach the gospel that is um, civic participation, because the, the items that we've talked about today is a direct impact on 
who goes to vote and who we put into office um, to nominate um, Supreme Court justices, to confirm, you know, individuals to be on the Supreme Court. This matters every day. Um, we're out of time. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, thank you as always. You too, Fred Smith, Tammy Greer, so glad to have you here. Kevin Riley, before we leave, give us a preview. Give us a headline. What are you going to tell these students of applied politics at the University of Georgia uh, this morning, aside from getting a subscription to the Atlanta Journal Constitution? Well, I, I really want to talk to them about um, uh, this trend in our society where, um, you know, journalists, politicians, now medical workers, and people of all uh, walks of crucial parts of our democracy are becoming uh, attacked and disrespected and perhaps misunderstood. And I want to find out from them what they think about that. Kevin, I would love, I wish I could be there to watch that because I know how good you are when it comes to talking to groups. And that's such an important subject. So I, I, I envy those students. Thank you all for being here. As, as we've done all week, um, we're, we're saying goodbye at the end of each show to one of the greatest artists of the 20th century in American life, Stephen Sondheim. Um, and we've been playing songs of his that evoke different periods of his career, different styles of music. Today, I want to do something a little different to end the show. Stephen Sondheim's first job in which he wrote both the music and the lyrics for a Broadway musical came when he wrote A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which starred Zero Mostel, who in those days in the 60s was one of the greatest stars on Broadway. Uh, Sondheim had already written the lyrics for West Side Story with Leonard Bernstein's music, and then the lyrics for Gypsy with Jewel Stein, and he was frustrated that he couldn't do both. So he wrote Funny Thing. It opened out of town, and it was kind of, the audience is, it's a comedy. It's a very lighthearted, bawdy, slapstick, vaudevillian comedy, and the audiences weren't responding to it. Ju Jerome Robbins came to see uh, the show and said later to Sondheim, the reason they're not laughing is they don't know it's a comedy. Your opening number needs to tell them that this show is going to make them laugh. And so... Stephen Sondheim sat down and wrote the song you're going to hear now, Zero Mostel singing Comedy Tonight. And this is Zero Mostel singing a slightly abbreviated version of the song at the Tony Awards uh, the year that it was up for nominations. So we leave you with Zero Mostel Comedy Tonight. Thanks again to the panel. Tomorrow we talk about the COVID and uh, the Omicron uh, 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 variant. And we'll do that with a panel who are now aware that San Francisco has seen a case. Till tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Here's Zero. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy Tonight, nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. All situations, no complications, nothing.